Welcome to this special Conversations Shelter in Place episode of the Orbital Perspective Podcast. Where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. T-minus 17 seconds and counting. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, go for main engine start, main engine start, 2, one booster ignition and liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery, returning to the space station, paving the way for future missions beyond. Hey, everybody! I hope this uh, I hope this uh, uh, message finds everybody safe and healthy and doing well. Um, welcome to another conversation, sheltered in place. Uh, we're glad that uh, that you're tuning in. Um, the purpose of these conversations is to help folks uh, navigate the current crisis that we're going through, the, the coronavirus crisis, and not just to get through it and navigate through it, but to get through it stronger and more unified than ever. And uh, to, to look at this time of not only hardship, uh, but look at, it at this time as a, as a time of opportunity uh, and an opportunity for us to come together uh, more unified, uh, a, a time for us to uh, express gratitude and um, 
and recognition of, of the on wonder that surrounds us constantly, of our family, of our friends, of, of our coworkers. And uh, it's a time for us to, to really reflect uh, on what's going on. And so uh, this week's episode, uh, I, I'm really excited that I have Yobi Benjamin uh, with me today. And, and um, part of being able to navigate uh, through this crisis is to know what's going on. And so Yobi has, has been very, very involved with um, creating PPE and creating test kits and uh, is uh, on the front line of, of trying to, uh, you know, provide the tools necessary to, to get through this. And so I'm just going to cover his, uh, his bio real quick. It's, it's, it would take me about three hours to, to cover his full bio, but uh, we'll just do a, do a brief version of that. So Yobi Benjamin is a successful entrepreneur, futurist speaker, and he's an internationally recognized expert on unle unleashing innovation and creating hyper growth. He advises leaders on how to thrive in today's digital era of disruptive technological change. He was named a 2015 technology pioneer by the World Economic Forum for his technology achievements in virtual reality and is an active member of the World Economic Forum's expert net network. Two companies that he co-founded won a 2014 CNN Top 10 Technology Products Award. Currently, Yobi serves as a partner at PA Consulting, working on product innovation with multinational corporations. He's also the founder and CTO emeritus of Token.io, providing software to banks that enable them to issue a new payment type specifically designed to, for use in the digital era. Additionally, he's a senior advisor to several startups in the technology and synthetic biology space. He is the former global chief technology officer for Citibank's global transaction services. He also served as chairman of Citi's Research Development Innovation and Learning Center. Yobi was also a partner and chief of global strategy at Ernst Young and Young and a partner and managing director for the Computer Sciences Corporation. He's also the former chair for a civilian volunteer group, the NASA Ames Collaboration Labs, where he's held this position for 10 years. He's also uh, currently involved in a very innovative material science corporation called Standard Graphene that is uh, bringing, bringing to the world uh, some really amazing uh, new products in, in, the, in the way of material science. And so with that, I want to welcome uh, Yobi. But before I do, I also have to say one last thing about Yobi. And I didn't realize this until we scheduled this, that, but today's his birthday. So, <laughs> so let's, uh, hey, Yobi, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> what, a, what a great honor it is that you would uh, not only come and have a chat with me, but uh, have a chat with me on your birthday. Uh, that, that's, that's really kind of you. So thank you so much for doing that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's been a while since we were together live uh, uh, and having, I believe, having a, a, a beer over in the, during the World Economic Forum this last January in Davos, Switzerland. And, yeah, you know, that was right I, before this all hit. That was, I mean, weeks before. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, it's like it. It was a, a and you know, I I sometimes wonder, right? Uh, since this is a conversation, this is just a casual conversation between friends. I sometimes wonder what uh, what the World Economic Forum had to do uh, had to do with the spread of this virus because mm, we had. Yeah. Thousands of Chinese uh, and French and Italians who came to Davos, Switzerland during that time. Right. Just before, and that was the last week of January. Right, right, right. The, yeah, the I, contagion I was already that, yeah. happening. 
Yeah. And so <laughs> you don't know if there was a very interesting um, thing that uh, that it may have played a role in the spread of the virus. Maybe. Uh, Probably, yeah. I also think about uh, CES, which also happened around the, these mega conferences. Right. Uh, you know, may have had something to do with bringing the virus to different countries. Yeah, it's going to be interesting once we get on the other side of this to see what happens to mega conferences. Um, you know that might be something that needs to adjust a little bit uh, as we come through the through the other side. I, I'm not so sure that people know that most people right now, Ron, know how infectious this virus is. I mean, it's not. It's in fact, this is probably one of the few diseases on the planet that everybody's heard of. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, That's because it's affected. It's literally affected every single person on the planet. Not not infected, but affected. Right. Yeah, and affected. But and the, the thing about that that effect is like everybody knows it's very contagious, very infectious. So I'm not so sure that the World Economic Forum, for example, will have uh, an event in January 2020. Um, or are we going to have CES in January 2020? I mean, or these are 2021. all yeah. 2021. Sorry, yeah. 2021. Yeah. I, I think it's. Uh, it's highly unlikely, and I feel for many, many, many industries and many events. I'm not sure I can watch my my beloved 49ers play in <laughs> in the Super Bowl again. I mean, I'm not sure how how that how that's going to happen. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think that's going to happen either. Not the not the 49ers anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I'm moving to Seattle, so I may go with the Seahawks this time since I'm a fair weather fan. All right. Well, I, I just believe it or not, I moved in the middle of this pandemic, and I'm in Boulder, Colorado, right now. I moved from from Tucson. So, oh, so well, uh, you know what? Your weather is a lot nicer there in Boulder than Tucson. This, this, time, this, time, this time of year, for sure. So, you don't so have you 110, 110 degree weather. Yeah. So you you're one of these amazing people who you know whenever you see a problem, you you create a system to fix that problem. And, and in a lot of cases, that system is a business. And so can you, can you walk me through the story of how, I mean, you started a business, correct me if I'm wrong. You started a business in response to, to COVID-19. Is that, is that not correct? That is, that is correct. Um, uh, but before I get into that, I mean, a lot of the COVID-19 work actually started uh, with uh, a company that I am a partner in called PA Consulting. Uh, or PA Consulting is a global consulting uh, organization where uh, we have 5,000 employees revenue, about, I don't know, a billion or so, uh, and, and we're global. And we have been very involved in, uh, in particularly in the UK, in the fight against COVID-19. We led in the UK the manufacture of the ventilators that are now deployed in the UK. On the other hand, you know, I made some very um, serious investments uh, in companies uh, that are in the testing business. Uh, and that company is called Crown, uh, Crown Global Biotech. Um, and um, I did that because it's funny how this happened. It happened because I was in Facebook. I was brought into a group into Facebook as early as February, actually. And they were talking about the coronavirus. 
And I had already, uh, you know, through some of my investments, have already uh, worked on COVID-19 issues in China, in Wuhan, China, actually. Wow. Uh, so uh, the company, the company that I, I work with, donated uh, donated you know hundreds of thousands of test kits to to China. So we were aware of the situation, and as early as February, very early February, I said this is not going to end up good. And I went to that Facebook group, and and everybody, and I felt bad about this. A lot of people were just complaining and saying like, oh. This is terrible. This is this. This is that. And I felt that, as you said earlier, I felt I needed to do something. And since I have a fundamental understanding of the technologies that are going to be necessary for this, I said, like, look, let's go make an invest, uh, make an investment, a serious investment in uh, uh, to deliver solutions uh, that would benefit the world. And we have been. And frankly, I've been very fortunate. We shipped um, about a million test kits to Chile, about a million to Israel. Uh, we are shipping test kits right now to India. Uh, we ship test kits to South Korea. Um, and of course, here in the United States, we, um, we have shipped test kits over to various states and cities here in the United States to the tune of about 400,000 tests. Uh, So we feel that we're making a a considerable contribution to the fight against this disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, testing, you know, I was a little bit disturbed today without going into the politics of this. There are people who are um, in positions of power, who are saying like uh, we may not need tests, and that tests are over, are are being overplayed. However, that that denies the science behind this, Ron. The science behind this is that it's highly contagious. We all know that. But the other thing is that asymptomatic people, asymptomatic, by the way, for the rest of the audience out there, means that. People without symptoms can transmit the virus. So, you know, you can have the virus and you will not exhibit any symptoms. You will have, in fact, there are people who have the virus who never have symptoms and they're just simply carriers. And they don't even know it since a lot of- They don't know it. And because they don't know it, they become spreaders. Even worse, they become super spreaders. Yeah. In South Korea, where we did some, where our our, our company did some initial work, uh, the contagion in South Korea happened in a city called Daegu, and was spread by one woman, who infected sixteen people. That sixteen, that initial spread to sixteen people became tens of thousands. Yeah. And that is the reason why testing is critical because you need to be able to separate asymptomatics or people without symptoms away from people who are vulnerable. Right. And that includes our parents, our grandparents. And interestingly enough, Ron, you may or may not know, have heard this, 
We now have a pediatric syndrome that is spiking in New York, Ooh. which affects uh, young children. Mm. Um, and it's a pediatric infl- inflammatory condition that causes heart failure in children. So we, because it's a novel virus, we don't know anything about this other than the fact that people with no symptoms can be walking around. That's why we need to figure out who these asymptomatics are because we need to separate them. We need to keep them away from the healthy population until such time that we have a vaccine. Right. So, you know, when people say, you, you know, wear your mask because you're not just protecting yourself, you're protecting others. There's there's big truth to that because because I might I could have the virus right now and not know it and you could have it. And so if I just if I just want to go out and have a party or go to a party or go to a restaurant and sit next to somebody, I could be in, infecting them and they could be a high in a high risk population. It, right there. Extremely. I mean, and the virus is a very is really it's. You know, this is probably not a great statement to make, right? But I will say it anyway. The virus is a beautiful virus. It performs as viruses should. It is cunning. It is very adaptable. And it mutates like any other virus and adopts to its uh, to its host and condition. And that... I say the way it's beautiful because it's a living organism that has uh, that has evolved to to protect itself and allow itself to mutate and grow and spread like any other living uh, organism. But it, it is also we don't know anything about this virus. We just don't know how mutations happen. We don't know even today how many mutations there are. The last count, and this count was from Iceland, actually. It was either Iceland or Finland that did a mutation count, and they came up with 35 mutations of the virus already. Already we know uh, uh, through research and verified uh, science that the virus uh, that comes from Italy is deadlier than the virus that came from China. Hmm. So they're not, they're both coronaviruses, they're both novel coronaviruses, but they're different mutations. Yeah. And the uh, and you can see actually geographically, uh, if you analyze the United States, right? How uh, the, deadlier, uh, the deadlier mutation has spread rapidly in the East Coast. Remember the travel from Europe to uh, to the East Coast between Italy, France, uh, Germany is is quite is quite large. It's just a natural entry point for Europeans to fly into New York to go anywhere else in the country. Vice versa, over in in the West Coast, Ron, uh, you know, people from Asia, their first landing point when they go to the United States, to San Francisco, Los Angeles, maybe Seattle, Washington. And you can see from the mutations that and the death rates, that the death rates in the East Coast are far larger than the the death rates over in the West Coast. You know, yeah, so. that's, that's interesting. You know, we, we've got a bunch of people watching um, yeah. and people are checking in. Hey, guy, Justin, uh, Stefan, 
Dominic and uh, Lauren yeah. and everybody else who's who's chiming in. Feel free to ask questions. We've got uh, yeah. the expert on <laughs> on board today, so uh, yeah, don't don't be shy. Jump jump in here with with questions. Yeah. So, so how does how does your test kits differ from from other test kits that are out there? That's a really interesting question. So I I have to give in order for to initiate this discussion, people, I have to go and tell you what the landscape of test kits are, yeah. uh, and I think. This is something that a lot of people don't really understand, uh, and because it's it's not easy to understand, frankly. So first of all, there are three types of tests in general. One's called a PCR test, uh, and that is analyzing the RNA and the DNA of the virus in order to verify the presence of the virus. The second test is called an antibody test or a serology test. This involves the extraction of blood, uh, usually a finger prick, and then you run it through a test. Uh, and actually, uh, um, I'm going to go show you some of these tests later. In fact, maybe uh, in a, uh, later uh, I'll have you go and do a little uh, monologue while I go and grab the test kits. <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, the, the, the second test kit is the serology and antibody. And the third one is called an antigen test. The antigen tests are fast, but they're not accurate. They're by nature not accurate. The most accurate ones are tests uh, that are called PCR tests. These are very sophisticated machines. They're very large. There are many manufacturers. The biggest uh, manufacturing the RT-PCR in the real-time PCR machine space is a company called Thermo Fisher. But there are many. You have heard of Abbott. You've heard of Roche. Uh, there's uh, uh, Holologic. There are, uh, that makes the Panther machines. Um, there is Cepheid that makes another PCR machine. There's just several of them. They're very accurate. But most of the inaccuracy of these tests come from two fundamental problems. The first thing is collection. To do a PCR test, right, you basically will go and get a swab, okay? And let me go and, and show you what it might be, right? Um, here is a swab, right? and I'm going to waste it, but you know, I'll I'll open it just to give people a sense of what this might look like. Um, this swab, by the way, is um, um, is comes in two flavors. The first flavor is um, so here's a swab, right? Um, the the first flavor is a throat swab. So you would take this. And you would collect mucus samples by harvesting mucus from the very back of your throat by your tonsils. Uh, you, there is a variant or a variation of this swab that is nasal. You basically, about three inches to four inches up, you bring it up to your nose or a medical professional will bring it up to your nose and then extract the same mucus samples. and. Um, and then 
you would put that in what's called a collection tube, right? So whether you do nasal or whether you do um, throat, you would take this and put it in here, in the collection tube, okay? Now, there is a little liquid over there, right? And that liquid comes in three varieties, which I'm going to talk about. And this is a little geeky, but this is very interesting. So you take this out, you bend this, it clips out, you close it. And then once you close this, uh, you would put your name, right? You would put your name in there uh, and then the date and time, and then you would send it to the lab. Okay. Seems simple enough. This liquid here is called a reagent. Just think about it as a special chemical. Um, there are three types of what's called transport media. This is called the transport media, basically the liquid here. Uh, the first one is called UTM, universal transport medium. It means that, uh, you can put uh, virus, bacteria, fungi, feces, you know, urine, whatever, wherever you want to get your sample from in this. And a UTM generally, uh, uh, some of the most of the UTM is made out of saline. Think about that for a moment. It's made out of saline. Okay, it's uh, very similar. Uh, to the saline that you could see in a drugstore for your contact lens solution. Slightly different, but by and large, it's salt and water, several different types of salts and water. The problem with saline is that the virus that you just harvested, you just ha harvested the most infectious virus that is circulating in the planet. You put it in here, right? And guess what happens? You now have live virus in this tube that you're sending downstream to all the way to the lab. Now, interestingly enough, to do that, you have to put this, the UTM, universal transport medium, in ice or dry ice because it normally takes anywhere from 20, 18 hours to 24 hours, sometimes 36 hours for this to get to the lab. And then in the lab, it goes and gets tested, right? So that the problem is there are several people who are handling this very contagious virus, right? All the way from the patient, all the way to the lab. When the sample is not collected properly, you get a false negative. Mm -hmm. The second problem is when it's not stored properly in ice, you basically degrade the RNA. RNA or ribonucleic acid um, is, is what you actually analyze in the PCR machine. The problem is RNA is very unstable. It degrades by the 18th hour from the time it's collected, it degrades and degraded RNA equals false negative. Okay, so now there's the other media called 
VTM, viral transport medium. So viral transport medium is generally made out of bovine extracted media, meaning gelatin. The purpose of VTM, right? The design purpose of VTM is actually to preserve the virus, right? And to preserve that virus so that it that virus can be cultured in a lab. Because virologists, remember before COVID, we don't have widespread virus testing, right? So VTM was actually designed so that a virologist and a clinician can go and send this to a lab, the VTM, and then it would be analyzed in a PCR machine and it would be verified by a viral culture, meaning you would now put this in agar, for example, and culture it and see if it will grow, whether it's bacteria, virus, fungi, whatever it is. So it was designed to carry live viruses. We don't want that. This is a very, very con convoluted and complicated supply chain, if you think about it that way. From the time you collect it, the nurse collects it, or the doctor, or the healthcare worker, it is going to move through many hands. It may, it may move to the nurse who's like cataloging it in the table. Then it moves to another person who, you know, who picks up the bag of tests or the ice box full of tests. And then it moves to a courier. And then it moves to some receiving agent in the lab. Then it moves to the lab technician, et cetera, et cetera. These things break, by the way, these little plastic things. And when these break, it's what I call a bio warfare weapon, as far as I'm concerned. This thing is full of the most contagious virus on the planet and should not be fiddled with. To answer now the question of why our medium is different, our medium is called DNA RNA shield. The reason why it's different is when you put the virus, the mucus sample that you collected in our uh, RNA shield, uh, RNA shield, it automatically kills the virus. So the virus is dead, no more. It can do no harm. The second thing why this is different is because it doesn't require ice. It doesn't require dry ice. It doesn't require refrigeration. And the third thing why this is very different is we will preserve the RNA, not the virus, the RNA of the virus for 30 days or longer. So it makes up for any lag time between collection and lab. And the lag time always happens because you have transport, you have airplanes, you have cars, you have people, etc. So it could take up to 48 hours yeah. to get for this to get there. And if the RNA degrades, it basically screws up everything and it doesn't work. Wow. That, that, that sounds like a, a fascinating innovation. And what, what, what was really interesting is when you said that we up until COVID-19 didn't have widespread test testing uh, infrastructure in place. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine, or at least I hope that coming out that right now, as we speak, that is all being put online and that's going to have something that's going to be something that we can carry forward 
to, to the next crisis or have something that that's something that we will carry through. How about if we just steer, steer the conversation a little bit towards what you see the post COVID-19 world as being, you know, what, you know, we're, everybody's talking about, you know, going back to normal. <laughs> and I'm just wondering what normal is going to be uh, that we're going to go back to. And I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on that. I think you're frozen. Or am I frozen? Yobi, are you there? Somebody who's listening online, send me a note to see if we're still live and uh, if you guys can hear me. Because I'm trying to figure out if it's me or if it's Yobi. Okay, folks. I think we uh, I think we lost Yobi. Um, so I'm still here. So th this might be my monologue. This is what <laughs> this is what when Yobi said I was going to to uh, do a monologue. I guess this is it. Okay. I think he's I think he's back. Let's see if he's back. Sorry, we had a slight hiccup there. I don't no worries. Know I was I was I thought that was my cue to start my monologue. <laughs> <laughs> no, I we have a very interesting question here from uh from Mark. Let's try to answer this one because I okay. this is a very good question from Mark. Uh, let me go and try to pull it out. Yeah, I got it. Do viruses mutate to ultimately reduce the lethality so it can continue to reside in the host, being living beings? Killing the host, it would seem uh, to not be in the interest of the virus. Thank you for your enlightening conversation. That's from Mark. Yeah, Mark, that's a really interesting question. So uh, there are two viruses that come to mind uh, in this run. Uh, the first one is Ebola. And the second one is MERS, uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is super deadly, by the way, uh, Ebola. So Ebola, uh, Ebola, by the way, stopped and was stopped in its track because it was super efficient in killing its host. It basically burned itself out. It couldn't find any more hosts. And the number one solution to stopping the Ebola crisis in in West Africa was in fact contact tracing mm. to be able to separate the people who were sick or those who got in uh, in in contact with sick people. The same is true for MERS or the Middle East uh, Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, it also burned itself out because it actually killed all its hosts and and it was also uh, managed largely by contact tracing. Um, it, it, it seems uh, it seems that killing its host right is uh, would not be smart for the virus right uh, has Mark alluded to in his question but the virus knows this right so it it's it makes up for the lack of a permanent host of a of the uh, of that host by being so infectious so it can go to many hosts. This is the adaptability of the virus, right? It's It goes and says, whoa, if I stay here and this host dies, then I die. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and as a virus, I'm going to go to as many hosts as I can so I don't die. So I perpetuate my uh, my uh, my longevity has as as a virus. Uh, anyway, 
so so it's a super organism basically it's a, yeah. it's a bunch of individual organisms acting as a single organism with a single oh, yeah. overarching goal that's uh, that's oh, yeah. That's uh, fascinating. Quite, quite actually. Interesting. <laughs> so, um, so I just want to go and address the other question, two other questions, Ron, and sure. you know the antibody test. So, what are the antibody tests? And this is where I'm going to ask you to go in a brief monologue of about a minute. All right. Uh, I just I'm going to get it. Yeah, I'm just going to go get it. You know, <laughs> just two seconds. You know. Okay. All right. All right. I'll take that the screen. So while while Yobi's gone, I just want to uh, put a pitch out to everybody to send me suggestions uh, for folks that you want to hear on our Friday afternoon conversation sheltered in place. Um, I'm really looking for some some great uh, folks to have a conversation with and uh, folks who will help us uh, navigate this crisis. And I think uh, Yobi is back. So these are the tests that we have. I'm very proud of the fact that this test is made in the United States of America. <laughs> and this is not made in um, a, backwater, a backwater lab or, a, uh, or imported from somewhere else. This is made, by the way, in New Jersey. And, you know, people say, you know, why do you like this particular test? Well, I said, I have a very simple explanation. It's an American company. But even more than that, these guys have product liability insurance. <laughs> that might be a funny, uh, an odd thing to say. But these, these, this company has a lot to lose. So they have put in a lot of effort and a lot of R&D into coming up with a superior product and an accurate product. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is, so this, the way this works is when you open it, right? Um, you basically have this. So you basically take a blood sample, a finger prick, and then you put it in there and you put a reagent. And then it's kind of like a pregnancy test. Uh, except in a pregnancy test, you want to be positive because that's cool. Uh, here, you want to be negative. <laughs> you don't want to be positive on this one. This, by the way, detects uh, antibodies. The only problem here, right, Ron, is, as you know, your basic biology, uh, high school biology, antibodies form after an infection is already completed. Basically, uh, your body has produced these antibodies that attack and try to kill the coronavirus. And th that is what this actually uh, detects. So, so, well, so you said you said you wanted to come back negative, not positive. Why wouldn't you want to have antibodies for coronavirus? Uh, no, no, I, I guess I misspoke on that one. I mean, I want to be known as, uh, I want to have the antibodies. Meaning, oh, maybe, I, maybe. Uh, but I you also, yeah, I, I think I misspoke on that one. So I apologize to the audience. But you do want, if you don't have the antibodies, it means you can deduce, although you cannot guarantee 100% that you don't have the coronavirus, right? It comes negative, it means you don't have the antibodies. Um, 
and it can say maybe you don't have the coronavirus. Right. And we but don't know. It, a, and we don't know at this point how long the antibodies last for, and you know whether or not you're contagious if you have that. I mean, you could have had it three months ago, and they could still be. There's no trace of the virus in you anymore. It's been defeated, but you still have the antibodies floating around, and you're still testing positive for the antibodies. Yeah, one of yeah, that's that's true. And one of the most uh, one of the most uh, interesting developments is that there are there is some promise in the plasma studies. Uh, people have been donating plasma. There is a clinical study being done in Stanford, a clinical study being done in the University of Washington. Uh, I think there are clinical studies uh, looking at at plasma and antibodies going on in many parts of the world. And apparently there is some promise. However, they're not quite sure yet. I mean, you know, clinical studies are not trivial. You know, I mean, and in particular, you don't want to have bad clinical studies because this involve this particular virus involves a human life, right? Uh, and um, you really want to go and make sure that you know you're testing uh, your uh, not only your testing but your your clinical studies are good and accurate. Right, right. So, what do you think the world's going to look like on the other side of this? First, for all, well, before I say that, how are we going to get on the other side of this? First of all, and then what do you think the world's going to look like once we come out the other side? What's the path? Am, and where's what's the path to the destination? And what's the destination? Well, I, I'm only speaking. I, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not a nurse. I'm not a you know. I'm not a virologist, but I believe. But I've read. I'm a very discerning reader, and the research that I I read an average of about four papers regarding this a day, literally a day. I mean the papers are crazy. They're coming out daily. Uh, it's hard to catch up actually. But there are certain there are things that are known. One thing that's known is the only way for the world to actually defeat this virus is to have a vaccine. That's the other side. That's the goal. Without a vaccine, uh, we're going to be in this slash modified workplace kind of environment for a very long time. At PA Consulting, actually, we are helping some fairly large multinational companies go back to work. And part of the strategy that we have been bringing forth uh, is, is to bring a little bit of common sense but a little bit of innovative thinking. So the common sense ones are pretty straightforward. Social distancing, reconfiguration of the workplace, you know, temperature checks, you know, um, recategorizing employees from low risk employees to high risk employees. Um, we still don't know the legal ramifications. And that's, that. that's, that's not risk of getting the infection. That's risk to the person if they get the infection, right? Correct. Correct. So, for example, a young 20, 24 year old, you know, no underlying conditions, non-diabetic would be category A. You can go to work right now. You can have category D people, uh, which we, you know, because we in the in the studies that we 
that uh, in the work we're doing, we're, we're seeing five categories of people. And the, the highest risk, we just called an E, you know, E class and the E, uh, e category. These are people with underlying conditions. Here's an example, cancer survivor, right? Uh, they've, they've gone into remission in cancer. Asthmatics, like people with asthma, people with high blood pressure. In New York, 33% of the deaths were diabetics. Mm. So, and then another significant group, overweight people. Uh, in particularly, obese people are very much at risk. Mm -hmm. We don't know why. This is the weird thing. It's like none of us know why all of this is happening. We, 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 we just don't know. I mean, there's so much that it's really difficult to go and make any prognostications on what the future will look like without a vaccine. Right. Because yeah, without I a vaccine. Vaccines take, you know, sometimes years to develop. Um, Correct. The fastest vaccine that was ever developed was the MMR vaccine. Mumps, uh, uh, mumps and rubella, uh, you know, uh, uh, the MMR, that was five years. Mm. <laughs> and I will remind people that HIV is almost 40 years old and we still don't have a vaccine. Although in, in, in HIV, we have some very good therapeutics mm -hmm. uh, that allow you to continue to live your life. But the, these are, vaccines are very, very uh, difficult to, um, to achieve. I mean, I, I'm not sure that we're gonna get out without a vaccine. That said, the vaccine issue is, is multiple. There are about 200 uh, vaccine research projects right now. 19 of them are deemed by both the US government, the EU, and various countries to have some promise. Um, but even if we discovered a vaccine, right, we have other challenges. One of the key challenges is that the global vaccine production capacity is quite limited. I don't believe, we don't have the capacity, for example, to make more than 200 million tests as a world. Wow. And clearly in the United States, if you just took the US population, you have 330 million, you take Europe a billion, you take China 1.5 billion, you take India one and a half billion, you take all of Latin America and Central America, that's another billion, you know, we have to make billions of these vaccines. We do not have the production capacity right now. If we discovered a vaccine today and we put it through the current vaccine infrastructure, it would take us also two years to three years to actually disseminate the vaccine. Yeah. So there is, there is going to be, and, and frankly, to me, I'm also looking at this. I'm looking at, you know, making a big investment in a vaccine factory in Florida, because we have to make this vaccine here in the United States. Right now, there's not really a very strong vaccine manufacturing infrastructure in the United States. Most of the vaccine infrastructure, guess where it is? Not in the United States. <laughs> France, which is Sanofi, uh, has it. Switzerland, 
as um, uh, China has it, India has it, uh, as far as the United States is concerned, uh, our vaccine manufacturing capability is not very good. Let's put, put it that way. Mm. Well, um, hopefully we're going to be so, building that infrastructure as we go. Um, we have to. We have to make that infrastructure. But it's a really, it's a delicate matter, right? If you think about it, if I have to build a vaccine factory today, right, I would need tens of millions of dollars to do so. Mm-hmm. without the promise of a client. Right. And what, what do I mean by that? I don't know if a vaccine will come up, yet I have to go and spend tens of millions of dollars to do a vaccine production capability so that it's ISO certified, so that it's in a sterile environment, so that it can do massive single doses, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, there is a big business opportunity in vaccine production, but it's a highly, highly, highly risky business proposition because we may never get to the vaccine. Right. So this is where government comes into play, why right. it's important for national governments to actually make an investment in something that is so unclear and uncertain, and that is vaccine production. Right. Without vaccine production, we can make all the vac- we can discover 19 vaccines it's not going it's it's kind of like so what well there's also I mean, besides, not, besides vaccine production we need ppe production we need test kit production we need you know there, there's a whole there's a whole virus infrastructure that, or virus com- combating infrastructure that we need to put in place yeah. that doesn't exist at the moment you know the the, the big problem in in all of these it's like the the need is so large or six we're a planet of six billion if i'm if i'm correct right About seven, seven billion, and a half i think seven and a half billion people you know to serve the needs of seven and a half billion people is a massive undertaking um you know not everybody is in a seattle like myself or san francisco or you know or boulder colorado I mean, there are people who live in the Navajo reservation, which is very rural. Uh, people who live in refugee camps in the middle of war zones. <laughs> you know, people who live in poor countries. Think Mali. Think, you know, the Sierra Leone. Think, you know, certain countries in South America. I, Bolivia. It's hard. Yeah, and what's interesting about that is the reason why we have to think of those places is because what affects one part of the world affects everything else. If if a major outbreak happens in Sierra Leone, it's going to affect the rest of the world. And so we this virus is showing us quite clearly and undeniably that we are literally all in this together and that we need to work together. One of the most profound uh, observations came from a scientist that um, – that used to work in the CDC, uh, and I, 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 I forget his name, but I don't forget the, I cannot forget the quote. Coronavirus somewhere is coronavirus everywhere. Right, right, right. So, what do you, what do you think the implications are for our future? I mean, how, how are humans going to have to act differently moving forward out of this? I think I'm going to throw that question back over to you because you, I know you and I have worked. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, Ron and I are working on a project 
to bring uh, a message of hope, goodwill, global collaboration uh, to everyone in the planet, not just to Americans, not just to the Chinese, not just to the Indians. And and I I would actually throw that question back to Ron because all right, how are we going to get out of this? It's because you know this point of view that we're just one planet and we're one system yeah. and we're a cl- this planet is a closed system. That's right. It's like it's like the you know space station. You know, it's a closed system, and exactly. in this system, yeah, everything's got to work, and we got to work together to make it a livable place. Right. And yeah. I'm going to throw that back to you. All right. Know? You know, it's funny. It's funny. I had when you were showing the test kits and, and breaking off the thing, and the, I was having flashbacks to being on the space station because we used very very similar test kits for all the experiments we were doing up there. But I, you well, know, by I the way, we, uh, I will. By the way, I will say this. Guess whose test kit is in your space station? I don't know. <laughs> Our test kit. We are the only NASA certified collection and transport kit. All your human samples, feces, urine, blood that's collected in the space station uses. Okay, this. well maybe that's why I look, maybe that's why it looks so familiar. <laughs> <laughs> because it was because it's identical. So, um yeah, I, I think you know, we talked about a lot of the differences coming from. We're going to have to build infrastructure, right? We're going to have to build uh, a defense mechanism, a defense system for the next virus that comes down or the next crisis that comes comes down the chute. I think what what is getting us through this crisis right now is what we call in the space business a- exhibiting expeditionary behavior. That means taking care of yourself, taking care of those people around you, uh, and with the the goal to be able to contribute to the overarching mission that you're that you're trying to accomplish, and so whether that overarching mission is the health of your family, it's it's uh, you know the 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 survival of your company, it's whatever that is is the overarching mission, and you don't do the team any good if you yourself uh, are not. Uh, acting uh, efficiently and performing efficiently because you're stressed out, you're tired, you're sick. Um, and so we really need to have self-awareness to, to, um, to realize things like stress and fear and what they do to our immune system and uh, basically have self-care. Once you have self-care and you're, you, are, you yourself are, are operating at, at, a, at a high efficiency or at 100%, then you, you need to start looking for telltale signs from your crewmates, from your teammates, from your neighbors, uh, from your family members, from your coworkers, that they're under stress, that they, that, you know, maybe they're talking too much. Maybe they're talking not uh, more than usual. Maybe they're talking less than usual. Maybe, you know, they, they look tired. Maybe they look like they're, they're dealing with something. And, you know, that extends to our neighbors too, even though we're all sheltered in place and, and we're, we really can't go out and socialize. That doesn't mean that if you've seen for the last, you know, 10 years, your neighbor come out every Thursday morning, pulling down the garbage can, and you don't see them this Thursday morning, and you know, they're home, you know, maybe we should check on them. And so what I hope comes out of this is a greater, a greater spirit of community, a greater spirit, a spirit of, of, of one human family of, of, you know, the, the knocking down of the ridiculous, thoughts that things like viruses uh, need passports to get across borders or greenhouse gases (laughs) or or anything else. There is, we live in a highly interdependent, uh, profoundly interwoven fabric of life that is the biosphere known as earth. And those, that two-dimensional map that hangs in the classrooms around the world that shows our world with all the nation states on it, 
that is an artificial world that we created. It doesn't reflect the true nature of the world that we live in. If, if we're going to deal with this crisis and, and we're going to overcome it and overcome all the other crises and the other real problems that we face, we have to do that in the context of the real world and, and politics and sound bites and all that is going to have no bearing on that. The truth of the matter is we live in a highly interdependent, interconnected world. And the only way we can problem solve any problem is to deal with the problem in the context of the real world. And so that's what I think comes out of this. And, and in more practical terms, I think social distancing uh, is going to be something that's going to be around for a while. Uh, we need to be smart about it. I, I, you know, right now, because we didn't have systems in place, we've kind of, you know, knee jerked way on one side of the spectrum with that. I think uh, the more we learn about this virus and other viruses the, uh, um, and how it's how it's spread and how long it lasts uh, out of a host and things like that, I think we'll be able to uh, fine tune those that social distancing. Uh, I think we need to restructure a lot of how we do things like uh, fund uh, vaccine production facilities and things like that that we talked about all around, around building the infrastructure. And so I think what we need to come out of this is is kind of like <laughs> when World War II ended and we built the international uh, uh, interstate road system, you know, because we saw that that, that we needed infrastructure. Uh, we're in the same case. We're going to come out of this this war with coronavirus, and we're gonna we're gonna have to be into a massive infrastructure building phase. Uh, and and part of that's going to be things like vaccine production facilities and PPE production facilities and and test kit production facilities and, and things like that. So that's yeah, my two I, cents. No, that's not two cents, buddy. That's that's two million. It's a big <laughs> number. Uh, but the point is, uh, this is where. If there's anything I want to leave, you know, our friends over who are listening to us is that we truly are just one planet. I mean, it's like just one biosphere. So I hate to take it back to something that has been politicized, but the wearing of masks. Okay. I, I just want to go and have a brief comment on that. When you wear a mask, you know, mask wearing only works when everybody wears it. It really doesn't work when there's, if there were a hundred people in a room and only one person, okay, uh, does not wear a mask, it doesn't work. Because that single person may be asymptomatic. And that single person could be, and this 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 virus is so, uh, is, is so efficient. It stays on plastic surfaces. There was a study that was done by the CDC and they analyzed the cruise ships. It stayed on the surface of cruise ships in various objects and, and uh, stuff in a cruise ship for 17 days. Oh, wow. 17, all right? The Chinese study, there was a study in China that said, seven days. Then there was an NIH study that said it stays up for three days. Regardless of whether it's three days or 17 days, the fact is this virus knows how to live outside of a human host in an living on an inanimate object. It could be a toilet seat. It could be, you know, um, it could be some, you know, plastic plate. It could be I don't know. I have no clue what it could live in. But we know, based on studies that were conducted, 
that it lives outside the human body for extended periods of time. It also, in the air, a study was released three days ago on how long uh, the virus, it, technically it's not an aerosol virus, and that's good because aerosol viruses like measles are very dangerous because they get, stay suspended in, in air for a really long time. This has the ability to be suspended in air because it's droplets or like, think about it as when you do a spray gun, right? You can see this when you spray, you know, what, Glade or whatever in the air and you can see the, vi the particles, you know, particularly when you do it against the light. Thank God it's not that, it's not an aerosol virus, but it still lasts for eight minutes <laughs> in the air. Damn. So that single person in that hundred, just by touching other stuff in the room or just by talking, yeah. allows the virus to go and contaminate others. Right. Oh, and I see we've, uh, we're having such a good time here, Ron. We're like used up the entire hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to do another one. Yeah, no, that, that's that. a really good point. I mean, you're not you're not just wearing a mask for yourself. You're you're wearing it for everybody else. Um, yeah. that's, that's and that's part of what I was talking about when I was talking about expeditionary behavior. But Yobi, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to be on and, and sharing all the all the, the knowledge and wisdom and advice. Uh, especially thank you on your birthday. I hope you have a wonderful birthday. Um, thank you. Sorry that you're locked locked away. <laughs> locked away for it. My kids are coming by later, so it'll be good. So. All right. Uh, All right. Thank God they're adults already. I got to test them before they come in the house. All right. All right. Good. <laughs> and thanks to everybody who tuned in and everybody who is uh, um, making comments and, and uh, asking questions. Yeah. And we're looking forward to, to seeing you next week, same time uh, next week, next Friday. Yeah. So with that, thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. Keep safe, everybody. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective. And thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space. <laughs>